0: This Cosmos Live series, Preparing for Profound Change, is made possible by Immediacy, leading creators of educational media for learners of all ages everywhere, and by Cosmos Community, dedicated supporters of the Cosmos mission, transformation in harmony with all life. Visit cosmosjournal.org to learn more. This is Cosmos Live, and I am your host, Rhonda Fabian. By my best estimate,
1: after looking at a lot of data, I think that what is sustainable is probably about 10% of the consumption of your average American at this point. And that means we need to come way down, that's a 90% reduction in how your average American is living in terms of the amount of resources consumed. That doesn't mean that it's gonna be terrible and you know, in some sort of horrible Stone Age existence, there's ways to do that and examples out there of doing that without it being a big deprivation
0: trip. That's Maikwe Ludwig, a longtime advocate of cooperative culture and locally self-determined solutions to climate disruption. She serves on the board of directors of the Fellowship for Intentional Community and is the executive director of Commonomics USA. She writes, teaches, and organizes from her home base in Laramie, Wyoming. Welcome to Cosmos Live, Maikwe.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: So, Maikwai, what is cooperative culture exactly, and how is it different from mainstream American culture?
1: Well, it's a little bit hard to sound bite because it's actually a very big thing. The culture around us is like the water that we swim in, and so it takes a lot to sort of unpack it. But in a nutshell... The culture that we have in mainstream America at this point is one that really glorifies competition and independence and individuality. And in fact, we've been measured compared to a lot of other countries, and we're actually the most individualistic culture in the world. And our schools, in a lot of ways, are kind of competition factories. You know, we're training our children from a very young age in how to compete effectively, partly because we are then launching them out into an economic system that's very Competitive. And we really teach very little about sharing and cooperation and empathy. And that's actually not working very well for us in a lot of ways. You know, we have um, some of the worst mental health statistics in the world. We have a lot of societal acrimony that you can see in like our political debates and whatnot. And then you have something like social media, which actually could be this really amazing tool for our collective liberation and for organizing and in a lot of cases it sort of devolves into this kind of right-wrong game. And so that's the milieu that we've all been raised in in the United States. And cooperative culture asks a really different set of questions, not how can we effectively compete and how can we express our individuality, um, but more what's actually good for the whole and how can we share resources and work together productively and how can we show up for each other when things go wrong and actually lean into empathy.
0: We talk a lot about values in this series. I'm wondering if you can speak to cooperation as both a, a, you call it the mother of all sustainability skills. So how is it both a skill and a value um, and how is it somehow related to nature itself? Oh, that's a great segue into that. Um, Yeah, so
1: so our culture is very much about independence and nature is really very much about interdependence. You know, you have to be, like in the natural world, there are, you know, wholly functional creatures under themselves, and yet they need all of those other creatures in order to survive. And that's actually true for us as well. But we've been sort of sold this line by our culture that we can sort of be totally independent operators. And one of the interesting things when you look at those mental health statistics that I was mentioning is how much actual PTSD our young people have. There's so much pressure on young people to figure out how to be fully independent. You know, if you're not out of your parents' home at 18 and never come home, you're a failure. And that's a really unhealthy setup. And it actually isn't at all what the natural world is modeling for us. And it is true that cooperation is both a value in and of itself and a skill set. And so, you know, cooperation means being able to share, being moved more by empathy than self-protection. And it moves us toward both attitudes as well as public policy that brings us together and finds our differences more interesting than threatening, which is one of the other things that our culture teaches us is that differences are bad on some level. And if we're going to take care, for instance, of our poor people, that probably means actually restructuring our economy and coming from a very different mindset, which is both, um, you know, societal and cultural, but also internalized with our attitudes about, you know, what success and failure look like. I'm really trying to push us toward something that has a very different values base to it and is more about care than it is about, um, you know, judging each other, you know, as successes or failures based on the wider cultural standards. Uh, And that's really the values divergence that I'm talking about here to move away from competition and toward actually learning how to take care of each other.
0: What brought you to this work, um, Maikwe? Do you live in a cooperative community of some sort?
1: I have for most of the last 20 years, and actually my my personal path was from growing up with a father who's an ecologist. I was a sustainability advocate, you know, from the time that I was probably 16 years old. And so I've had 30 some years now of doing that work. And one of the ways that I got into working um, with cooperative culture was through living in intentional communities, which are just groups of people that live together based on shared values. And my first community was one that was really good at the ecological stuff and was really good at sharing. And so I got it that a lot of the things that I'd been advocating for in terms of my sustainability activism, as well as my feminism and a bunch of other stuff, um, this was an environment where you could actually do that. You could actually live your values in a very concrete and direct way. At some point, I got much more focused on the, um, the social systems part of it, the culture stuff, because I realized that a lot of communities fail and a lot of social justice and activism organizations fail mostly because we don't really know how to cooperate. And so I've gotten more and more deeply into the social dynamics aspects of community over the last 20 years that I've been living in community.
0: Yeah, I've, I understand um, and I've seen from my own experience how these wonderfully intentioned um, initiatives and communities can sometimes fail. And sometimes it has to do, I think, with um, the inner work. What kind of inner work must we do in order to be effective agents of change?
1: Mhm. Well, and and I agree with that for sure. I think I think you're making a good diagnosis of it. And you know, really all cooperative endeavors if you do them with depth and sincerity are radical because they require us to sort of move into a different skill set. And, you know, for me, that inner work has a lot of different pieces to it. And um, let me just highlight a couple of them. One of them is learning how to be curious in the face of differences and disagreements. I think that curiosity is a really underrated personal skill and a really underrated piece of personal work. It's hard to get curious when you are standing in the face of somebody that you adamantly disagree with and yet if we can't get curious about how they got there then we're not able to actually do work around bridge building with people that we have differences with and you know nobody thinks exactly the same way that we do and has the same approaches to things and so there's a constant flow of opportunities to practice this curiosity and sometimes it's um, you know in small ways and sometimes it's in really big ways Uh, And I think one of the reasons why it's really important is, um, you know, one of my mantras is that if you can't accurately hear what people are saying, you can't accurately care. About them. Like you can't actually show up and give them what they're actually needing if you don't understand where they're coming from and what their needs are. Um, So I think curiosity is really essential. Um, The second one is compassion. And this is, you know, many of the world's spiritual traditions really focus on compassion and for good reason. And, um, you know, this plays out in a lot of different ways. But one of the examples that I use is. Uh, contrasting a compassionate response with a competitive response is what happened after Hurricane Katrina came in and really destroyed whole communities. And you saw this competitive culture response where a lot of businesses sort of swooped in and they had business plans on the books for like what happens when a disaster happens that really allowed them to take over Whole communities and sort of insert themselves into those communities. And then you had people that just dropped what they were doing and went to New Orleans and showed up and said, How can I serve? How can I actually be here and be present for people who have just been through a terrible tragedy? And what can I do? And that response, that what can I do, is really what I mean by compassion. I don't mean sort of sitting on your meditation mat, although that's great and important too. I mean actually looking at how can I show up and really materially embody compassion with people around me. And that's really intense work, and it's a different kind of work, um, you know, than doing our sort of meditative and contemplative work. Um, and then the third one that I would highlight it has a really different feel to it from, those, uh, from curiosity and compassion, and that's discernment. And I think sometimes, you know, in the progressive world and in the sort of alternative worlds, we somehow think that we need to leave our discernment at the door. And I actually think that that's really destructive. I think it's important to be leading with curiosity and compassion. But yet we've got to be able to draw distinctions between what's real and what isn't real. And between what actually serves the direction of the world that we want it to be going in. And so I do a lot of work with intentional communities and this is a big problem in a lot of those communities is that lack of willingness to say actually that's not true or actually that idea isn't as good as these other ideas because we're passing judgment on people's ideas and people's statements and people's perspectives on things. And yet You know, we get community out of being curious and compassionate, but we get vibrancy and we get actual social change out of our discernment. And so I think you have to pair those things together. And those are really different skills. And I think they need to be sort of moving together. It's like, you know, if you have two horses that are sort of pulling you along, you want those horses going in the same direction.
0: Those are excellent um, skills that you described. Maikwe, I'm going to ask you to uh, use your crystal ball here. What changes do you see ahead for humanity if our current culture of isolation and greed is allowed to continue unchecked? Mm.
1: Well, I see three main things that are really disturbing to me that are the trajectory that we're on. The first one and the one that is the focus of a lot of my work right now is climate disruption. Like so long as we stay in this mode of being hyper-consumers and also hyper emitters of carbon emissions and other greenhouse gases, we are really on a very negative track in terms of where we're headed ecologically and societally. Um, The second thing that I see that is really disturbing to me is the, the increasing disparities that we have in wealth and equity in the United States and in the sort of whole Western world. And, you know, people who don't have a lot of resources um, like a have a really hard time being creative like it's hard to contribute creatively to a changing world when you can't feed your children and you don't have health insurance. it's bad for you to be in uh, a state of constant emotional stress about your finances and uh, and people tend to make poor decisions a lot of times when you know when your only option is to buy super cheap food, because that's the amount of money that you have, you're contributing um, unintentionally to a lot of these ecological problems being a lot worse. And then I think the third trajectory that we're on that's really disturbing to me is more about how we relate to each other. It's that lack of empathy that we're seeing among policymakers and the lack of empathy and respectful dialogue that we're able to have with each other right now. And you know it's really hard to solve problems with each other when we can't listen to each other.
0: So many people believe that science and technology and, um, you know, continued economic growth are, can fix what's broken in the world. What do you say about that?
1: There's a really fascinating book that um, somebody slipped me when I was at a speaking event a couple years ago called The Conundrum uh, by a guy named David Owen. And the subtitle of it is something like How Scientific Innovation, Efficiency, and Good Intentions Make the Climate Worse. And, you know, his basic point is that when we're coming from, or the way that I interpret his point anyway, is that when we're coming from a, um, a consumptive mindset Things like having a car with better efficiency in a way kind of gives you mental permission to drive more, and there's a lot of ways that that kind of phenomenon has actually played out. That said, we have all the tech that we need to solve the climate crisis. Like We don't actually need more tech. What we need is the political and social and cultural will to do something really different and a different understanding of how our consumption patterns really affect the rest of the world. Um, You know, as for the idea that, you know, economic growth is going to, you know, save us, uh, I actually think that is completely opposite of what's actually true. I think the problems that we have are mostly driven by our economic system at this point that needs to continue extracting from the planet Um, Value needs to continue extracting from people their labor and the value of their labor. And you simply can't keep growing an economy in a world of limited resources. And that is the world that we live in.
0: Mm, The global capitalist mindset. Yep. Yeah. So I would like to dig a little bit deeper into the idea of intersectionality, um, the idea that injustices of the world are interrelated. In your opinion, what are some of the underlying injustices, and you've, you've touched on this a little bit, but maybe we could go deeper, the underlying injustices contributing to climate disruption?
1: If you look at the countries that have historically contributed the most to the climate crisis, they are dominated by white people. And if you look at where in the world the effects have been showing up the most strongly so far of climate disruption, whether that's countries or regions within different countries, including the United States, um, those areas are predominantly brown and black people. And I firmly believe at this point that one of the reasons why we've let ourselves get away with that is racism. Like if you can't look at the news stories that are coming out about people suffering all over the world and feel genuinely in your heart that these are my people dying, these are my children dying, then you're going to let yourself get away with a lot. So I think anti-racism work is really, really important for us to be doing right now just to get back to a place where we can be coming from genuine empathy and responsibility for the ways that our actions are affecting other people. And the second oppression that I would highlight is class oppression. And, you know, our economic system is, as I was saying, fundamentally extractive. You know, capitalism is about building capital. And that capital gets built by extracting value from the natural world and value from workers. And our whole economic system, you know, particularly in the United States, it's like it started out being built on slavery and continues to be built on the backs of people of color in the form of what is de facto slavery with prison labor. And a lot of industries that get a lot of their benefit from prison labor at this point. And also the, you know, the women's work has, you know, traditional domestic work, which is still done more by women than men is uncompensated and all of those systems it's like we have the working class we have people of color and indigenous people particularly with their land being stolen from them and women and it's like our economy wouldn't function if we weren't abusing all of those different groups of people and that's another big piece of personal work you know doing your work around race and gender and class oppression I think is a huge part of our spiritual work at this point in the world
0: I agree. I was just thinking about um, a statistic someone shared with me, uh, something along the lines that, you know, it took half the world's resources at the time to build um, the British Empire and the American, you know, empire. And so that as um, these overdeveloped countries, um, you know, continue to consume at these huge rates, you also have countries that are less so-called developed that are coming online in terms of a a burgeoning middle class and, you know, using more and more resources of the world. So it's obviously not a sustainable um, model.
1: Right. It it isn't at all. And, you know, by my best estimate, after looking at a lot of data, I think that what is sustainable is probably about 10% of the consumption of your average American at this point. And that means we need to come way down. That's a 90% reduction in how your average American is living in terms of the amount of resources consumed. That doesn't mean that it's going to be terrible and, you know, in some sort of horrible Stone Age existence. There's ways to do that and examples out there of doing that without it being a big deprivation trip. But that also means that there is there would be space in the world for other people to increase their consumption some, you know, we need to really come down in the developed world and we need to make space for other people to be able to get their needs met better.
0: So in your book, uh, Together Resilient, Building Community in the Age of Climate Disruption, you offer some practical guidelines. So can you share with us some of these ideas about how communities can work together to build a more resilient future? And less consumptive one? (laughs) Yes.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, I think there's three different levels to it. I mean, one of them is um, something I've alluded to already, which is getting to a place where our public policy is based more on compassion and equity. The second one is highlighting a lot of um, locally based solutions that use community as a tool. And so there's a section in the book where I talk about a lot of really amazing urban agriculture projects that are happening in Detroit. And I could have profiled all kinds of different cities. I, you know, I picked Detroit because I knew people there. Um, but there's some amazing things happening where they're reclaiming land in abandoned neighborhoods and they're growing food together and they're, um, you know, deepening their cooperative skills with each other in the process. And they're also reclaiming a lot of power in their lives. And then I t- talk a lot in the book about intentional communities. And um, there's a couple of communities in particular that I highlight. Um, One of them is Dancing Rabbit Eco Village in Rutledge, Missouri. And Dancing Rabbit is really an extraordinary community. They are actually making that 10% mark that I was talking about earlier in some of the most important uh, areas that we can measure consumption with. So they're actually doing it. And you know, they have cars, they have the internet, they eat just fine, they have homes. I mean, none of this sort of deprivation stuff that people picture when I say, yeah, you're going to have to get it down to 10%. um, Well, that's not what you see at Dancing Rabbit. You actually see a really good, abundant, socially connected and supportive life that people are being able to live on really low consumption. And so I think uh, intentional communities are, Uh, some of the best kind of laboratories that we have for figuring out how do you actually do this living a low consumption and high integrity life. And so I point to that movement as a place where there's lots of different models where there's interesting things happening. And I think of them as being one of our sort of R&D labs for how we actually do this. And, um, you know, and that's something that people can get together and organize, it's actually an incredibly fulfilling way to live life. And it's one that I've been engaged with for about 20 years.
0: That That's wonderful. Um, you, you you touched on this, but, you know, one thing I've noticed is that um, a lot of these initiatives like transition towns, the eco-village movement, um, communal, various kinds of communal models based on, you know, principles of permaculture and so on, they seem to thrive um, more, you know, readily in smaller towns and in rural areas. Um, When we talk about intentional community in urban areas most affected by economic disparity, what could an intentional community look like?
1: Well, there's actually a lot of examples of intentional communities in urban environments as well. And um, one network of communities that I can um, highlight for you is there's a group of communities called the Catholic Worker Houses. And they are focused, and and they vary a a little bit from community to community, but I think there's like 160 of them in the U.S. at this point. So this is a a movement happening within the communities movement. And they're focused on um, things like providing Um, you know, feeding homeless people and some of them serve as halfway houses as people are coming out of prison or coming out of, um, you know, mental health treatment and that kind of thing. And they're doing some incredible work in cities and cities have a lot of advantages to them, even in terms of the ecological stuff. You know, you've got access to public transportation. Um, Some of these communities dumpster dive and you can't do that in a really rural area because there's no dumpsters. Um, You know, I mean, there's just a whole bunch of stuff that urban environments um, provide that are different from what rural environments provide, and so the the communities have a different flavor to them, um, but actually you know urban community is a really vi- vibrant and viable um, part of what is out there and what is available at this point
0: That's good to know you know um, I guess another maybe it's a a, mis- a misconception that I have is that um, that where there's not a strong spiritual uh, foundation, that sometimes these communities tend to to come apart. Do you find that to be true or not? Is it, it, I'm thinking of, you know, monasteries that I, I've known that have thrived for a long time. And um, do, do you think the spiritual component is important?
1: Well, I think what's absolutely important is shared, articulated, agreed upon values. And, you know, with spiritual communities, that that package is often a lot easier to see from the outside looking in. But I think every really successful community that I know um, has that shared values base. And I think spiritual communities often have an advantage in that because that's so on the table when you're going into them. But there's plenty of examples of secular communities that have found a different way to have that kind of shared values and shared language base. And I think those are really critical.
0: Maikwe, how important is it to think about um, the places where we live on a sort of bioregional level, and um, maybe speak a little bit to the ideas of food, water, and energy um, sovereignty? Do you talk about that much?
1: Um, so so there's an interesting thing. There's a curriculum out there that was created by the Global Eco-Village Network that's called the Gaia Education Curriculum. And uh, the Global Eco-Village Network is really exactly what it sounds like. It's an international network of um, sustainability oriented communities all over the world. And so they're in different climates, different socioeconomic situations, different political systems. And the curriculum was really pulling together sort of what are the the commonalities that all ecovillages have. Uh, regardless of what those outside circumstances are. You need to engage socially, economically, ecologically, and what they call worldview, which was called spiritual, you know, back in the earliest iterations of the curriculum. And they realized at some point, like what we were just talking about, that it doesn't necessarily have to be spiritual, but it has to be values-based. And um, and the answers are very regionally specific. So, you know, I've, I've lived in intentional communities now in, Um, Michigan and Missouri and New Mexico. And now we're working on forming one in Laramie and growing food is really, really different in all four of those places. And so, you know, you, you're going to be looking at the same things, like how do we grow food? How do we support ourselves? where does our water come from? Um, how do we get our energy? And like in, in Wyoming, I live in the fossil fuel, one of the fossil fuel capitals of the United States and green energy is staunchly resisted here by a lot of people. And that's really different than some other places. When I lived in New Mexico 12 years ago, there was already readily available wind power. And, um, and so I do think that the answers vary from place to place and they are absolutely bioregionally specific. Um, Which is also a good reason when a community starts to actually connect with the elders in your area that are already there and know how to farm and know how much rain you get and all that kind of stuff. Um, But the same questions are going to pop up pretty universally when we are actually looking at how to live
0: sustainably. I'm still sort of my head is reeling a little bit about the ninety percent <laughs> reduction in my in my consumption. Can so you walk- just
1: pause and feel that <laughs> for a second, Rena? That is exactly what everybody feels when I say that. <laughs>
0: Can you walk yeah. me through a typical day? How would my day be different?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, in a lot of ways, it's not that different. I mean, you know, going back to the example at Dancing Rabbit, I lived at Dancing Rabbit for eight years, and you know. I got up in the morning from a bed and I brushed my teeth and I made breakfast in a kitchen and, you know, like like in some ways it's really not that different at all. What's different is that the water that I was using was um, at least in part caught off of roofs instead of just coming from municipal water. Um, The kitchen that I was doing that breakfast cooking in was a communal kitchen that there were other people around. Other families were using that same kitchen. Uh, A lot of the food that I was eating was grown right on the property or grown within a few miles of us. And we had Um, You know, set up relationships with local farmers to make that easier to do. Um, The energy that I was using was from solar and wind. The house that I was living in was a straw bale and cob hybrid that I had built myself. Um, My kid was being educated by other people in the village instead of being sent off to public school. Uh, When I wanted to take a car somewhere, I would sign out one of the four communal cars that are collectively owned by the community instead of getting in my own car. Um, So a lot of it is just setting up the structures differently. Um, I think one of the other really tangible differences is that I would walk out my front door and I literally know everyone who lives in my village and I know them pretty well. And um, I get a lot of hugs (laughs) as I'm going through my day. Um, I get a lot of people checking in and asking, how are you? And actually meaning it you know, our, our standard thing. And again, in American culture is like somebody asks you how you are, and the expected response is, fine, thanks, how are you? And it doesn't actually matter if like your favorite uncle just died, or you just lost your job, you're sort of expected to play this game about I'm fine. And that's not a game that we play in communities like Dancing Rabbit. I mean, we're really interested in showing up for each other. And that leads to a lot of really positive outcomes. You know, I spent probably less time in therapy and less time at the doctor because I had really good social support. Um, in fact, I'm sure that that's true, uh, it, you know, at least in my own particular case, because I went through a couple of years of chronic illness and the community really took care of me in a really direct way. Um, and so the, the flavor of the life is really different.
0: And what are some of the challenges that you've experienced uh, living in, you know, cooperative communities?
1: Mm. That's funny. One of my throwaway lines is that um, community would be so great if it wasn't for all the damn people.
0: (laughs) That's what I thought.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is the people stuff is really hard. And you know, and a lot of that goes back to that sort of cultural transition that I was talking about. Like, we, we don't know how to resolve conflicts very well. We're all learning that as we go along. And that's a really messy thing to be learning when you're in an active conflict with someone. Um, so, you know, a lot of it is is that social skills that we lack make it really hard to pull off something like this unless you're really committed to doing that work. And... Um, and I feel grateful that I was in a community for so long that was really committed to that work because I got to see, you know, how tangible the outcomes are when people are willing to do that. But it's hard.
0: One great thing that um, about intentional community and, and transition towns and, you know, just building more cooperative communities is we don't have to wait for anyone's permission to, to do so. You know, it's not that we don't have to go and um, reform the existing structures uh, from within. We can simply begin anew with uh, our own ideas and our and our own systems.
1: Well, and that is especially exciting right now when, where I feel like a lot of people are feeling kind of paralyzed and not sure what they can do or if they can do something. And I just want to hold out a measure of hope and a measure of, like, proactiveness that you can absolutely be making these changes and recreating these structures in your life now. And you're right. We don't have to. It doesn't matter what's happening in Washington. And there are some things that would be easier if we did some reform. And so I, I don't think we can, um, I think if, if there were certain laws that were overturned at this point, and if we did have a different economic system, it would be so much easier to do these communities, but we don't really have to wait.
0: So what are three um, either takeaways or three actions that someone listening to this podcast um, could, could use or do to begin preparing for the profound changes that lie ahead?
1: Well, I think the first one is just continuing to do our, you know, our spiritual work and our personal growth work and particularly being willing to take a really hard look at what do our values actually mean materially? Like if I really believe um, in equity or I really believe in compassion for other beings, like what does that mean in terms of uh, my daily decisions and being willing to do that kind of dig deep on that front, so I think that's one of them, and that's another thing. That, like, you don't need anybody's permission to do that, and there's so many resources out there at this point to um, connect those dots and put together that understanding. So I think that's the first one, and um, the second one I would say, which goes back to some of the political stuff that we were talking about, is to support and join the solidarity movement. And so this is going to be the, you know, Black Lives Matter and Standing Rock and um, things like the New Economy Coalition and really recognize that the, the racial and economic work that needs to be done right now is pretty essential. You know, older, wealthy white people and especially men have done a pretty good job of blowing it. And I think we need to be really empowering other voices. And if that means that we as as white people and people with a certain amount of economic privilege deliberately step back and make space for those other voices, I think that we need to be doing that right now. Um, And that's also hard work to do. And so I want to recognize that. Um, And the third thing is just finding and creating community, you know, all the different variations that we've been talking about in this interview, um, you know, whether that's getting to know your neighbors and looking at local community-supported agriculture projects or supporting your urban farmers or looking at doing something like an intentional community and really sort of full-on changing the fundamental structures of your life and leaning more into um, community and relationship with each other and, you know, giving each other emotional support and also ultimately materially supporting each other really directly by creating community together. And it's just so much easier to do this stuff when we're banded together and doing it. Even taking into account the challenges that I was talking about socially, the the ability to actually change your life tangibly is much easier done with a group of people. So that'd be the third thing. Create community in whatever form you can
0: manage it. Those are wonderful guidelines and we will certainly provide links to the various resources and organizations that you mentioned. And I also want to mention again that your book, Together Resilient, Building Community in the Age of Climate Disruption, um, is available and offers some practical guidelines. Um, I want to thank you so much, Maikwe, for for being with us. It's really been uh, a joy speaking with you. Uh, Thank you for joining us on Cosmos Live. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Rhonda. Take care.